If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, I'm Russell Nolte from Wannabe Press, and you're listening to Soundtrack Alley. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be rollicking through the Old West and the future with Back to the Future Part 3. I'll discuss the cast, background, and of course, delving deep into Alan Silvestri's third score for this series. Sit back, relax, as the show begins now. Hello, I am your host, Randy Andrews, and welcome to a brand new Soundtrack Alley Spotlight today. I'm discussing Back to the Future Part 3 from 1990. Besides Back to the Future Part 1, this is my favorite in the series. It gives us a brand new story, it doesn't rehash the first movie, and gives us a wonderful and adventurous score to breathe with. Let's dig into some of the great moments from the film, specifically things on the cast and the background. When Doc and Marty are at the drive-in preparing the DeLorean for the trip to 19... No, excuse me. When Doc and Marty are at the drive-in preparing the DeLorean for the trip to 1885, Marty mentions Clint Eastwood, and Doc replies, Clint who? In this shot, there was a movie poster on the drive-in's wall showcasing Revenge of the Creature and Tarantula. And these were containing some of the first film appearances of the young, yet then-unknown, Clint Eastwood. Marty even looks to and briefly points to the poster and he says to Doc, That's right, you haven't even heard of him yet. Clint Eastwood was even asked permission by his name being used for Marty in the film. He consented and was said to be tickled by the homage. When Buford Mad Dog Tannen tries to lynch Marty, Michael J. Fox was accidentally hanged, rendering him unconscious for a short time. He records this in his autobiography, Lucky Man. Now, according to the book, Billy Gibbons, rock and roll gearhead ZZ Top was hanging around the set and was asked to be the town band. During one take, the camera broke. 
While waiting for the camera to be repaired, Michael J. Fox asked if they would play Hey Good Lookin', which they did. Afterwards, more requests were played. Two hours later, someone inquired if the camera had been repaired. Robert Zemeckis <laughs> had replied that it had been fixed quite a while ago, but he didn't want to stop the party that had evolved. Thomas Wilson, who played Buford, Mandog Tannen, performed all his horse riding stunts himself. He also did the trick where he lassos Marty just before we meet the 1885 Doc. Now, Michael J. Fox compared the filming of all three movies to being back in school, as it seemed like someone was always teaching him something for the films. During the course of filming the trilogy, Fox was taught how to play a guitar, how to ride a horse, and how to shoot a gun. The film marks the only time in the trilogy when Doc Brown exchanges dialogue with a member of the Tannen family. He had previously interacted with Biff in the alternate 1985 in Back to the Future Part 2 by knocking him down on the roof of Biff's pleasure palace with the opening gullwing DeLorean door. Now, the clock for the Hill Valley Clock Tower can be seen in the background being unloaded from the train as Doc and Marty talk to the conductor about the train's speed. The same clock can be seen being unloaded in the Clint Eastwood film, Pale Rider. In 1976, Matt Clark played Kelly, the bartender, in The Outlaw, the Josie Wales, serving Josie Wales. Here he plays Chester, the bartender, serving Clint Eastwood, Marty McFly. Doc Brown states his German ancestor's surname was Von Braun. This is a reference to Werner Von Braun, one of Germany's lead rocket scientists who was taken to America following World War II and assisted greatly in the NASA program. The twinkly piano cue used at the start of the main title theme of Back to the Future Part 3 is an homage to by Alan Silvestri to the George Powell movie H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. An almost identical twinkly piano or harpsichord motif can be heard at the start of the track called Fear, used in the original Russell Garcia score of the 1960 classic. Now the train station is near the site of the station built for Pale Rider, this Clint Eastwood movie. The two halves of Pale Rider station became new buildings in Hill Valley. One can be seen in the north end of town by the corrals and tracks, and the other at the south end by the water wheel. Now the film, of course, is the final chapter in the Back to the Future trilogy. However, an animated television series based on the trilogy premiered in September 14, 1991, and it ran for two seasons. The series took place after the movie, and it depicted the further adventures of Marty, Doc, Clara, and their sons, Jules and Vern, and their family dog, Einstein, and even the DeLorean time machine rebuilt, which is voice activated, which is cool. And to continue that reference is that now there's a comic called Back to the Future, and it went on for at least, I don't know, two trades, maybe more. I can't quite remember. I didn't read the whole thing. But there's quite a few of them out there. 
It was also the sixth grossing film of 1990. Now, the DeLorean makes its longest single leap through time in this movie, traveling 100 years, one month, and 20 days from September 7, 1885 to October 27, 1985. The film also marked the second time Christopher Lloyd worked with Pat Buttram, as they had also appeared in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as Lloyd played Judge Doom, and Buttram was the voice of one of the talking bullets. In the dedication to the clock's tower scene, the fireworks ignited are the exact same pattern as when the lightning struck the tower in the first movie. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale have both said that this was the most fun film of the trilogy to make. They cited the fact that they were making a western which they loved as kids, plus the tranquil set they went to each day, giving them the great time while filming. Now, although Marty mentions Clara's name several times throughout the film, he never actually addresses her as such. Instead, he refers to her respectfully as ma'am. And what's interesting is this film was only filmed over a period of five and a half months. And when Doc shoots the hanging rope, it's a nod to the film The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, in which Clint Eastwood's character shoots the rope from which Eli Wallach is hanging. Now also another reference to another Clint Eastwood film is when Marty avoids being killed by stuffing an iron stove door under his poncho to deflect a bullet. He has taken the name of Clint Eastwood, who did a similar move in the movie Fistful of Dollars, which is the scene in which the rich Biff was watching in the hot tub, which is interesting. Now, of course, the cameos refer to ZZ Top, and Robert Zemeckis is cited with Marty walking along the railroad tracks and finally reaching town. He comes to the railroad station, then he walks into town while the camera slowly rises up above the station and finally shows Marty at a long distance walking into the town. This scene was actually shot exactly the same as it was in Once Upon a Time in the West when Jill arrives at the station. Now in the novelization, after a little boy hands Marty back his gun, he asks him where he got the idea to wear the oven door under his clothes. Marty replies he saw it in a movie. The boy asks Marty what a movie is. Before Marty can answer, a woman calls out the name David. David Llewellyn Mark Griffith. This is the real name of the pioneer filmmaker D.W. Griffith, who, having been born in 1875, would have been only 9 or 10 years old in 1885, which is kind of cool. So here's some calculations for you. We're talking about the DeLorean. We're talking about time travel. Bear with me on the time odometer. If the DeLorean was equipped with a time odometer which measures years traveling backward or forward in time incrementally, much like a standard odometer measures miles traveled forwards incrementally, it would have traveled a grand total of 570 years through time before being destroyed. Here's how the time odometer would have been measured. Now I'm going to go slow with this because it might take you a minute. 
So, number one, 1985 to 1955, 30 years, which was the first trip. Then it was 1955 to 1985, which is 60 years. Then, three, 1985 to 2015, 90 years. And then it's number four of 2015 to 1985, 120 years, which is Stock's return to Warren, Marty, and Jennifer. 1985 to 2015, 150 years, which is Doc and Marty and Jennifer's trip to 2015. And then 2015 to 1985, 210 years. And then 1955 to 2015, 270 years, which is Old Biff's return. Then we've got the alternate timelines of 2015 to 1985A, 300 years. Then 1985A to 1955, 330 years. And then we have 1955 to 1885, 400 years. And then 1955 to 1885, which is 470 years. And then finally, the 1885 to 1985, 570 years. This is quite a trip. Now, let's get into the score quite a bit. With Alan Silvestri writing and partially producing the same time as Back to the Future Part 2, the final installment in the franchise in 90, 1990 was afforded an identical budget as its predecessor, about $40 million. But it returned by far the least in grosses of the three films, which is sad. But still, it was popular enough with critics and audiences to produce a decent profit. Back to the Future Part 3 features a solidified storyline that avoided the potentially confusing level of time paradox pitfalls of the second entry. And it's one of my favorites, too. With the majority of the Back to the Future Part 3 set in 1885, the film enjoys a consistent plot with pithy parallels to the 1950s part of the trilogy. And it culminates in one of the most exhilarated train sequences to ever be shot for the screen. He, Silvestri received countless accolades for his work for Back to the Future. Um, much of the music that he used in that film was reprised for the sequel. Before production got far into Back to the Future Part 3, the composer did write a short Elmer Bernstein-inspired Western theme to accompany a teaser for the third film contained at the end of the cliffhanging second one. It overshadowed a score for Back to the Future Part 2 and was technically adept and contained a few interesting alterations from the first film's material. And it was just enjoyable to listen to. It reminded you of an Aaron Copeland score. And it breathed new life into the trilogy and the franchise. It not only offered a few memorable new scenes, but it also relied less upon the straight reprises of the previous thematic incarnations that plagued the second one. The downside to that equation is that some of the more integral secondary thematic elements of the first two films are underplayed in part three, 
Returning to close out the trilogy, Silvestri's primary theme for this franchise is split, as usual, into its triumphant fanfare and adventurous rhythmic halves. Because the last moments in the 1955 period of the first film were briefly recounted, the composer opens part three with a restatement of his standard finale, segueing into the short burst of the fanfare of the official title of the third film. And then he employs the theme's two parts in more fragmentary throughout the film until a new theme for the train and other surviving elements from the previous scores. Even in the finale of the third film, Silvestri alters the pacing of the conclusive phrases of the theme's two parts to signal the definite end of the overarching story. The performances of the adventurous half of the theme sound far more inspired in this score than in Back to the Future Part 2, played with genuine excitement during the lengthy train sequence, and with striking beauty in its mingling of the love theme for the film as well, which is gorgeous. The fanfare receives a compelling transition to redemptive strings early in its, its Clara, which is the train part two. It diminished from the picture and practically was absent from the score and in the whole forms, which there's a wholesome theme for Marty and Doc's friendship, as well as a bubbly, fran- frantically rhythmic theme for Doc Brown. And the only remnant of the positive side of Back to the Future that doesn't completely fade is a series of tingling percussive triads that are used as descending stingers for magical moments on screen, which is really cool. Now, the rambling danger motif that represented the troublesome Biff Tannen in the first two films is broadened to its application to action scenes in Part 3, just as it extended to the clock tower sequence in the original, the suspenseful preparation rhythm from the mall and the sequence in the original is heard in part two and then also in the cue, It's Clara, like again, the train part two. Although the primary theme of time alteration from part two wasn't memorable, it incorporated into the moments in the third film that suggest that the timeline could be changed for the worst. This menacing material was most notably heard in the first half of The Hanging, and a few seconds in Point of No Return, which is The Train Part 3, and with a lighter touch in The Future Isn't Written. These evolutions of the motif actions and ideas which lack the bigger role of the original Marty and Doc theme, seems odd, but the timeline of the film suggests that each story takes place immediately after the previous one. So, one of the things that I noted in the film is at the very beginning of Part 3, Marty actually gets a chance to rest before he takes on the next part of his journey to find Doc. With, with the former not really having much place in Back to the Future Part 3, there's a comedic usage in Hill Valley, and it bursts out suddenly with We're Out of Gas, and anchoring part of the end credits. 
Now, the love theme is reminiscent of some of Jerry Goldsmith's character themes in the 1990s, and is heard extensively through the score, gorgeously flowing in main title, and several times later with conversational cues before impressive full ensemble performances in Doc Returns and End Credits. So these latter two cues featuring the fullest performances of that love theme are also mirroring When You Wish Upon a Star, which is a little too close for comfort. So somewhat more nebulous, but figuring heavily in the climatic closing to Doc Returns is the train for the theme, a three-note motif that gains momentum along with the doomed engine. Accompanying it is a secondary six-note phrase, a series of two-note stingers, and puffing snare rhythm, obviously meant to mimic the sounds of the locomotive, which is so cool. I know I say that a lot, but it really is a fantastic score. Varez Saraband released uh, a CD version of Back to the Future Part 3, and it became part of the CD Club entry as a proper presentation of the film's version and the score's cues, which lead it to having several alternate versions, as well as the musical pieces that were by ZZ Top, which are mainly all fiddle and violin. The score is ultimately a classic Western score, in the vein of Aaron Copeland and Ennio Morricone, which adds a gorgeous texture to the whole series. And first of all, what I'd like to do is be able to play the first three cues in the film and see how you enjoy it. Because this film really is notable. It has several gorgeous pieces of music, and the first I'd really like to play with the beginning of the film is when we see how Marty is stranded in 1955, and he gets Doc to help him to go back further in time to save Doc. I know, it's complicated. So what I'd like to play first is back-to-back courthouse, main title, warmed up, and then Indians. Enjoy.
Alright, so the next cues that I'd like to play are included with the hanging, we're out of gas, there is no bridge, and dock to the rescue, and at first sight. These are cues that really show some of the western atmosphere to the film. And it shows our action pieces for the conflict between quote-unquote Clint Eastwood and Mad Dog Tannen, but also the love themes that are included with Doc and Clara. And I really enjoyed those. So I hope you enjoy The Hanging, We're Out of Gas, There Is No Bridge, Doc to the Rescue, and At First Sight.
The next piece of music that I'd like to play, and this actually is close to uh, calling attention to the end of our show. I'd like to thank you for being here with me on this episode of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. To conclude the show, what I'd like to play is Calling You Out, Count Off, The Showdown, The Kick, A Science Experiment, The Train Part 1, It's Clara, The Train Part 2, Point of No Return, The Train Part 3, and then we have Doc Returns and the End Credits. So these cues, I know it seems like it's going to be a lot of music to play, but these cues are so important to the film, and it really brings out the lush, rich tapestry that Silvestri really showed through. I hope you enjoy these last few few cues. Um, Thank you for listening to my show. Uh, You can rate and review it on iTunes. Um, Find me through my website, SoundtrackAlley.com. Find it also by emailing me, uh, SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. Find this show through Anchor.fm, through Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Overcast, and I think it's found on CastBox, and it's on Spotify for sure. So those are different places you can find the podcast. You can follow me through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's all at Soundtrack Alley. And so until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.